Welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way, we'll learn something about each other. We sincerely hope we accomplish that mission. The opinions expressed herein are mine alone as a veteran. Well, we've got a great show for you tonight. We'll hear highlights from the Wayne Memorial Healthcare System's Pearl Harbor Commemoration Ceremony on December 7th. We're going to visit with the folks at Building Homes for Heroes, and we'll check in with Pike County Veterans Affairs. But first, here's some news of interest for our Hudson Valley military community. National nonprofit Reach Across America announces that the Westfield Flats and Riverview Cemeteries in Roscoe, New York, are official locations for the 2022 WAA mission to remember, honor, and teach. This is the second year the Roscoe community will participate in this national program. Reads Across America started with a simple gesture of thanks that has grown into a national movement of dedicated volunteers and committees coming together to not only remember the nation's fallen, and honor their service, but to teach the next generation about the sacrifice they made for us to live freely. This year, there will be more than 3,100 participating locations, placing veterans' wreaths on National Wreaths Across America Day, which is Saturday, December 17, 2022, with more than 2 million volunteers coming together to do so. The goal of Wreaths for Roscoe, New York, has been to raise enough funds to place wreaths at the headstones of the veterans laid to rest at Westfield Flats and Riverview Cemeteries to ensure that individuals who serve to protect the freedoms of our country will never be forgotten and to bring the community together in a patriotic commemoration. National Wreaths Across America Day is a free community event open to everyone. Roscoe's ceremony will be held at noon on Saturday, December 17th 2022 at the Westfield Flat Cemetery, 1955 Old Route 17 in Roscoe, New York. December 7th marked the 81st anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which caused the U.S. to come off the bench and join the struggle, which was World War II. 2,402 lost their lives, and 1,178 were wounded in this attack. 
during the war some 16,112,566 Americans served in the United States Armed Forces with 405,399 killed and 671,278 wounded. Wayne Memorial Health System in Honesdale hosted a special ceremony to mark this infamous occasion. Now, due to technical difficulties, parts of this event did not record. Well, Hugh Reckner is a Vietnam veteran, a Huey chopper pilot, a former bank officer, a lawyer, a father, a husband, and in his spare time, chairman of the board of Wayne Memorial Health System. And he was kind enough to record the highlights for us after the fact so that we could capture the essence of this solemn occasion. I'm Hugh Reckner, Wayne Memorial Health System Chairman. As you heard in the introduction, there were some technical difficulties which prevented the actual recording of this live event from being aired. I was asked to provide you with highlights of the program, which I will do following. And thank you to all who attended our Pearl Harbor ceremony to honor the heroic members of our armed forces who served at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941 many of whom lost their lives in the surprise attack by Japan. Also attending our commemoration were members of the Veterans of Foreign Wars Post 531 and American Legion Post 254, which helped us mark this pivotal moment in our country's history. And following the Pledge of Allegiance, these were my opening remarks. In a speech to Congress on December 8th, the day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Roosevelt called December 7th, 1941, a date that will live in infamy. And so it came to be. The attack without a declaration of war and without a warning was particularly deadly, onerous, and later judged in the Tokyo trials to be a war crime. And the four or so years that followed brought virtually the entire globe into a bloody conflict with unimaginable loss of life and destruction of infrastructure. And it finally ended with the first use of an atomic weapon. War is a uniquely cruel event humanity's ongoing development perpetrated over the centuries by a select few irrational leaders and suffered not only by multitudes of soldiers, but also by civilians, men, women, and children, who had nothing to do with the cause of the war. And as is most often the case, the many soldiers and sailors that die in war on all sides are usually the young, often the best and brightest a nation has to offer, the ones that could have been and should have been the future of their nation but they were called on to serve their country. And in all the wars our nation has fought, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Middle East, they served with honor and a sense of duty. I served two tours of duty in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot, one of which included the infamous Tet Offensive. And I can confirm that the losses we suffered in that conflict were consistent with those of history. Starry-eyed, mostly young men and women who had so much to offer. 
I went to Vietnam the first time at the ripe old age of 25, leaving behind a wife and three children. And I, like many others, had visions of all the heroic action that I might be involved in. But I found that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. We had young men of 18 and 19 serving as crew chiefs and door gunners who had little control of what was to happen to them since they were at the mercy of the pilots in the cockpit. But they served and they served well. My second tour in 1971 was quite different since the wind down had begun. And our young soldiers and sailors, men and women alike, felt that the end was near and they did not want to be a casualty so close to the end. But still they served, perhaps not as willingly, but they could be counted on. It's often said that war is hell, and I would like to officially confirm that. Perhaps there will come a time when we can avoid war with diplomacy and understanding, although that may be wishful thinking, considering some past and present world leaders. On behalf of everyone at the Wayne Memorial Health System, I would like to thank the members of Hogan Camp Schuper VFW Post 531 and Major Dave McKelvey Peterson American Legion Post 254 for participating in this remembrance event today. Major Peterson and Millard Hogenkamp are two of the 55 Wayne County veterans memorialized on the original dedication plaque here at Wayne Memorial Hospital. And now let's travel back to that infamous day as recounted by Dale Pepper and Doug Wiley. The attack, December 7th, 1941. It started a few years earlier. Japan occupied French Indochina and the US retaliated by freezing all Japanese assets in the States, preventing Japan from purchasing oil. Having lost 94% of its oil supply and unwilling to submit to US demands, Japan began planning to take the oil needed by force. To prevent the U.S. from interfering with its planned military actions, Japan decided to act first, attacking the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. At 6.10 a.m. on December 7, 1941, six Japanese carriers launched the first of the two waves of planes about 200 miles from Oahu. As the Japanese winged south, some U.S. forces got a feeling there was something different about this Sunday morning. By 7.55 a.m., when the Japanese arrived at Pearl Harbor, soldiers from Schofield Barracks at Wheeler Field had already rushed out to man the firefighting equipment. Elsewhere, at Hickam Field, they leaped into burning planes to engage the enemy from mounted guns. Sailors at Ford Field did the same, and so did Marines at Iwa. At 8.54 a.m., the second wave of Japanese bombers descended. 
Altogether, the Japanese sent 353 torpedo planes, bombers, and fighter planes to destroy the American enemy. Some 2,400 U.S. military and civilians lost their lives that day. America, the nation, was stunned and sad, but the U.S. did not retreat. The very next day, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared war against Japan. And although it's never been verified, a film quoted Japanese Admiral Isoruko Yamamoto, who initiated the Pearl Harbor attack, as saying, quote, I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve, end quote. The U.S. hit back and hit back hard. Of the 18 ships sunk and or damaged at Pearl Harbor, 13 were repaired and returned to action during the war. Critically, the Japanese struck at a time when the three aircraft carriers of the U.S. Pacific Fleet were not even at Pearl Harbor. They were out to sea on maneuvers that fateful day. The Japanese also neglected to destroy shoreside facilities, which later played an important part in the Allied victory in World War II. The Japanese crippled Pearl Harbor, but ultimately they united a nation divided, the U.S., and triggered what eventually became their own demise. Their attack was a gamble, and they lost. Reverend Dale Pepper followed with this prayer. Heavenly Father, we gather to commemorate those among your servants who gave their lives at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Because of their dedication to duty, we still enjoy the freedoms we inherited from our forefathers. Because they served well, we are proud to call them our own. We ask that following in their footsteps, we may continue in your service until your summon comes. Then in the knowledge that we have striven to serve your counsels and precepts, may we be worthy to be united with them and with you forever. Amen. President Lincoln said that speeches and statues are not adequate repayment for service in defense of one's country. And though one day of remembrance is not enough for what our troops withstood at Pearl Harbor, we are compelled nonetheless to remember them and respect their memory. We honor them as Americans committed to their families, their fellow servicemen and women and their country.
Of all the things our veterans need, the most important is a place to call home. Not just a house, but a house specifically equipped to accommodate our wounded heroes' needs. There is a very unique organization which has been helping in that regard since 2006. Building Homes for Heroes is a New York-based NGO that provides new homes or retrofits existing to meet the unique needs of wounded warriors and rehabs neglected homes donated by banks or other institutions. Here now is our conversation with Gavin Carrillo, Director of Donations, Chris Claude, Gunnery Sergeant, retired U.S. Marine Corps, a recipient of a retrofitted home, and Kimberly Vesey, VP of Building Homes for Heroes. So, welcome to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill. We're very fortunate to have a group of folks that are going to talk about Building Homes for Heroes, a unique organization helping our veterans with quite an impressive track record. So, uh, welcome to Let's Talk Vets, folks. Thanks for having Thank you for having us. Well, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Gavin, you reached out to us after listening to one of our archived podcasts, so I'd like to start and have you give us a 10,000-foot view of Building Homes for Heroes. Well, Building Homes for Heroes is a nonprofit organization that specializes in gifting mortgage-free homes to post-9-11 veterans. And we've recently started to expand our mission now to incorporate all veterans, including first-line responders as well. Okay, so not only veterans, but uh, firemen, policemen, and, and et cetera? Yes, sir. Okay. We've, we've just recently expanded that and are currently doing work with a couple first-line responders right now. Okay, so Kimberly, could you give us a little um, audio sketch on the beginnings and how this organization started, when it started, and why it started? Building Homes for Heroes started in 2006 when we saw veterans coming home injured, having issues with being able to find a home that they could access or modify the home that they already lived in so that they were able to be independent in their own living space. So our founder, Andy Pujol, who was a volunteer at Ground Zero, decided to start a nonprofit and help one family with a mortgage-free home that would be adapted to fit the injured veteran's needs. Fundraised for a year or so, put a board together with some of his friends and basically built this house for this one veteran. And after that was done, they said, you know, we don't want to stop doing this. We want to keep going. And 15 years later, here we are, still going. I just gave our 300th mortgage-free home this year. Where was that? 300th was in Texas, Dallas, okay. Texas, Princeton. Okay, so you guys are based in New York, but you're nationwide. We are, in fact, nationwide. We are in 33 states, but we're pushing to hit all 50 as soon as we can. That's great. So how are recipients selected? Because there's a lot of recipients out there needing these homes or needing to have something done with an existing home to make it more compatible for them to live in. And then who builds the home? I have to assume you work with contractors and such that build the home. Do you get a favorable pricing and what have you from particular contractors that you continue to work with? We have several programs, actually. Our, our biggest program, our primary program, is our home building program. We have three home building programs. The first is when we build new homes from the ground up, completely 100% brand new for our most severely wounded veterans. The second is banks will donate homes to us, REO properties, from their uh, asset inventory. We'll take those homes, 
renovate them, make them beautiful, you know, new appliances, new flooring, new everything, adapt them if needed to the veteran's needs and get them mortgage-free. And then the third program is that we will modify a home that a veteran owns and needs, you know, extensive work to. The third program can be more expensive than all of the programs for the fact that it's hard to really adapt a home that's, that's already existing. So, for instance, we're, we're doing an adaptation here in New York for a property for a veteran that lost both of his legs uh, in Iraq, and the, the renovation itself is over $400,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we do that when it's necessary, but it's not the preferred method. The preferred method is building the home brand new, and that's our uh, the, the number one program in our, our home building. And for the reason that you said, we are able to partner with big builders that come in and say, just cover the expense. You know, we already have our guys building this community. We'll give you one of the homes or two of the homes in this community well below market value. And, and that's really the easiest for us because not only do we have a beautiful new home that won't have any issues, but it's built and adapted for the veteran already. So that that is our favorite. And some of our bigger builders are, um, we're partnered with the Pulte Group, uh, the Perot Group, Hillwood. They donate lots to us and Highland Homes. The builders have been fantastic. They bring all their, all their vendors together and have everybody donate. They make big celebrations. We've been very lucky to partner with with wonderful builders that really love our country and are really giving back to, to our country. So when you build a new home, depending on the veterans' limitations, how big are these houses? We Well, that's one of the things I think that that is unique about us. We are not standard in any way. Every home is specific to the veteran. Our primary concern when we look at a veteran and a community is why do you want to be in this community? Do you have family here? Do you have community support? Do you go to a church or a synagogue? Are you a part of the community? Because the home is supposed to be the foundation for recovery and growth. Without having that, that support, without having that foundation, you know, people don't tend to stay long-term. So when a veteran comes to us and says, you know, I want to be a part of your program and fills out the application, the most important question on our application is the location. Now, location changes the the layout of the home, right? Because the same home is not going to exist in Nassau County, Long Island, as in Dallas, Texas. So we build to fit the community. Home will be the size and type of home that fits in that specific community. With that being said, that could be from 1,200 to 3,500 square feet. And, you know, the one, our 300th home that we gifted in Dallas recently, actually had an entire track system going through the ceiling so that the veteran could go from his bed to the bathroom, to the shower, and not have to be in the chair. And he could use the hoist system because he was paralyzed. So, you know, every home is very, very specific and unique to the veteran, the veteran's needs, the veteran's wishes, the family's wishes, and location. So the veterans actually seek you guys out and, and apply for it. It's not a situation where you look over a list and, and select a veteran? It will happen both ways. We have over 5,000 applicants that have filled out applications with us hoping for help. So either a bank or a builder will come to us and say, hey, I have a home in Chantilly that I would like to, I'm building this community, I would like to donate one of the homes to your organization. Then we'll go through our veteran application system, run the veteran application system and try to find someone who wants to live in Chantilly. Or we'll go out to the Chantilly VA or... um, special forces or some of the uh, groups that we're very close with and ask them if they'd like to nominate a veteran for that home. 
Likewise, we'll have veterans that come to us that are wounded and say, you know, I can't afford to live in Chantilly, but I'd really like to, to be in a home near my family. And then we'll go out and try to find a builder and we'll, you know, try to get bids for a build in Chantilly. So we work both ways. Let's go now to Gunnery Sergeant Chris Claude, U.S. Marine Corps. And um, Chris, I want to ask you, first of all, to tell us uh, how you were injured. Tell us a little about your service. And then let's go on and tell us about your struggles uh, finding a suitable place to live and how it came to be that you connected with building homes for heroes. So I'm originally from uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. Joined the Marine Corps right out of high school. I served in the Marine Corps from 1998 to 2007 as a uh, artillery operations chief. When I came off recruiting duty in 2005, I was selected to to be a part of what's called a MIT team, which is a military transition team, uh, which is basically a small group uh, of Marines with different skill sets designed to train an entire Iraqi battalion. So I went to Iraq in the end of 2005 with the sole purpose of getting an entire Iraqi battalion functional to uh, fight and conduct basically counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. We, we taught them, I mean, everything from how to do basic admin to how to shoot, supply, logistics, the whole gambit, just to get them to be able to do what they needed to do to be successful. I guess we must have ticked off some of the right people or the wrong people because on February 20th of 2006, about 300 yards outside of the Iraqi Army compound where we were embedded, my vehicle was struck with a, it's called an EFP. So it's an explosively formed projectile made to penetrate the armor of the Humvees. It, it did a number on us, kind of blew the Humvee apart, threw us into a drainage canal. I ended up losing my right leg above the knee due to blood loss and infection and things like that. So I spent a little time in, in, in the Baghdadi yard, a little time in launch tools, and then uh, I was in uh, Bethesda is an inpatient for a couple of months and then got uh, sent to San Antonio, Texas, where I did all my rehabs and whatnot. Uh, at that point, I you know, decided that it would probably be better to retire. So that's what I did and bounced around from different places following work and whatnot. I happened to find building homes for heroes. My leg bothers me. I can't sleep. So I was up all night and there, and there it was. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was fate. I don't know, but that's, Kind of how I, I came across Building Homes for Heroes' website and then bounced around from Texas to California to New York. And then I was in the, uh, the Poconos in Pennsylvania at the time. And um, I was like, you know what, like, I- I'm going to apply. In the Poconos, there's not a whole lot of a housing that's great for someone who's a, a, a leg amputee. Most of it's two stories. So trying to get a wheelchair around, like when you're not wearing prosthetic, is tough. So I, you know, I figured worst case scenario, maybe they can point me in the right direction or, or, or help me out. Not even thinking that like I would actually maybe get a home, um, but just maybe give me some good insights or something. And uh, Kim was the first person I talked to on the phone about eight years ago. And it was, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're reaching out to you and, and uh, we have a home in your area that, you know, she, she got me though. She's like, I just want you to go look at it. Tell me, you know, tell me if it would work for you or any other veteran. So it was it was one of the the second homes that she talked about uh, that was bank owned, and I came and I checked it out, and, and it was uh, it was a two story home, and I was like, oh man, I don't know. I said, uh, you know, I'm an amputee, and I, she kind of informed me about like you know they do modifications and this and that, 
And I said, okay. So I, you know, I finished the application and, uh, and then it was quiet for a while. And then out of the blue, I got invited to one of the, their biggest golf outing fundraisers in New Jersey. And I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. You know, I'll go and actually get to, you know, meet him and see people and that kind of stuff. And, uh, Lo and behold, as I'm sitting there, they announced that my family would be the home recipient. That's a very short explanation of how it happened. My house is, is here in Long Pond, Pennsylvania. It's completely modified for me. I actually have an, an elevator in my house for when I'm in my wheelchair so that I can get up and down without having to, to deal with the navigational struggles of being an amputee and, and having a two-story home. My bathroom's completely modified so that I can actually take my prosthetic off, transfer safely into the shower, and be able to do everything I need to do for myself uh, without any kind of assistance or anything like that. No, that's a great story, and you, you told it very well. And I, I don't know, uh, Kim or Gavin, is that, that's probably more typical than not, right? Yes. Well, Chris, Chris isn't your typical person, actually. I, he's one of my very favorites. But yes, that's that's about generally how it goes. But uh, flattery, <laughs> will, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's a great story. How long have you been in the home, Chris? Uh, so I will be in March of this year. This coming up year, it'll be six years. Oh, wonderful, uh, wonderful. Today I've been a member of the Building Homes for Heroes family for eight because it was about it was about two years of kind of going through the process and then waiting for a build and stuff. And the question you asked before, not to go down a rabbit hole, but about, you know, how do you build and who do you work with and stuff like that? The Poconos up here was kind of a new area. And I don't mean to talk for Kim either, but it was kind of a new area. They didn't really have a whole lot of contacts with, with builders and whatnot up here. So it took a little while to actually find somebody that was reputable, that would you know do work that wasn't trying to turn a profit, so to speak on the work itself. So it took a little longer, but then, uh, you know, we got in and that's been, like I said, it'll be six years in, in March. One of the interesting things I noted on your website was that we not only set these deserving veterans up with a home that is comfortable for them to live in, given their limitations, but we get them a certified financial planner. And I thought to myself, duh, that should be an obvious part because getting the home is one thing, Keeping the home is another, and if you're disabled, you're getting a, some sort of a VA pension, I would imagine, but sometimes it maybe costs more than you're getting, so a financial planner, it seems to me, would be a no-brainer. Yeah, so we, we set up the, the program with NAPA, National Association of Professional Financial Advisors, and we have every recipient matched with a, an advisor for two years. And that's for so many reasons, right? Home ownership is not easy. So the homes are donated mortgage-free. However, homeowners have other responsibilities besides for mortgage. You have to pay utilities, you have to pay HOA fees, insurance, and taxes. Not every state is tax-exempt for injured veterans. I, I don't know why, but they're not. I would love to see that change. Florida is 100% tax-exempt. That's why it's our, our number one state for injured veterans to live in. So there's all these other responsibilities, right? And most of our veterans have kids also. So it was definitely an important thing for us early on to make sure we had some kind of financial advice going on so that when veterans did become homeowners, they were prepared, you know, for when the roof gets a leak or a hot water heater goes or, or when these inevitable things happen in homeownership and, and raising a family that they would have that foundation that we talked about before to be able to be independent. 
in their in their civilian life. It's great to have somebody like that on your side who is not looking to make money off your back, but looking to really help you because of the, the situation that they're in and their arrangement with building homes for heroes. Gavin, I have to ask you a question now. Given this past couple of years and, and, and certainly going back to COVID, uh, how has that affected your donations? Have you seen a difference uh, gone up? I, I would just guess they they probably went down. Is that correct or not? Well, actually, we've we've been doing quite well these past couple of years, even through COVID. Donations are actually up this year, and there's a couple of different fundraising techniques that um, you can use to actually really kind of push through COVID and through the social distancing and really still be able to reach people in their homes, even though we're kind of away from each other. And I know we're getting back to that sort of normalcy that we had before, but even still, I mean, there's immunocompromised people out there. So really taking things a step towards the digital age and COVID relief funds and really just being able to reach them in their house is the most important thing. Such an amazing cause. It's really kind of hard to not want to give to something like this. If I could just add a little bit to um, what Gavin said, uh, the pandemic definitely affected us as far as fundraising. We did, like like Gavin said, I uh, appreciate that most of our donors stayed on board. However, our need increased dramatically. Uh, we gave over $200,000 in emergency funding to veterans around the country because there was a much higher need. Inflation happened. Pharmaceuticals were much harder to come by. Even toilet paper was, was more expensive and, and difficult to find. So we adapted very quickly. We started an entire program for emergency funding. We started sending out checks monthly. I think we sent out over, over a thousand checks in by the end of 2021 for emergency funding for veterans. It, it was a difficult time for us because we understood that our veterans already have PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, are already um, have have mobility issues and being able to leave their homes or take care of their families is a huge crisis of mental health for them as well. So this year we have also started a uh, mental health program where we are teaming up with multiple different organizations to offer uh, mental health assistance to our injured veterans. So the the pandemic, we were very lucky to, to maintain our donors. However, like I said, that need has dramatically increased and we are looking for more and more uh, people to join us and more corporations to join us for the sheer fact that our need has gone up at least tripled since since that happened. So uh, any any support that anybody would be able to offer us would help us support these new programs as well. Okay, that sounds like a plan, and it's um, remarkable that um, you guys were able to stay the course, as it were, even with inflation, and and actually go above and beyond and help more. And that's a remarkable accomplishment. You should be very proud of that. Okay, so how many homes to date and where have they been built generally? We hit 300 um, on September 10th, and I think we're about 12 after that. So I think we're about 312. Our largest state that we build in is Florida. Uh, we probably have over 100 out of the 312 in Florida. Uh, the next largest state is Texas, Arizona. And, and it goes from there into the 33 other states. And I read somewhere there, there's a goal by a certain time to reach, uh, is it 340 homes? 
We are going to gift our 343rd home next year uh, in the first or second week of September, and that is in honor and memory of the 343 firefighters uh, that lost their lives on 9-11. So what are some of the events that you obviously must sponsor, some fundraising and such around the country? What type of events? I mean, you said golf. That's a, that's a no-brainer. But what are some of the other events that you would do to, to raise some much-needed funds for this very worthy cause? Well, we have our three golf outings, one uh, in Connecticut and one in New Jersey and one in New York. And then we have our honoree dinner where we honor one of our partners or sponsors, and that's in New York City uh, around November 11th time frame. We have other various events throughout the year, clay shooting. Um, some of our veterans put on events for us, and some of our larger sponsors put on events for us. But I think those are our largest. So how can folks, our listening audience, uh, if, if they would like, or folks in the area, donate or participate, get involved, volunteer? Absolutely, yes. We can use all the support. And e- even just going on to, to check out what we're doing. I mean, it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing to be able to, to intend to help one family and to be able to help so many that we have. So you go to buildinghomesforheroes.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, all of those uh, social media platforms as well. And just check us out. If you are so inclined to make a donation or have property or uh, anything, uh, building supplies, there are there's a pull-down menu on there. Our phone number is on there. It's 516-684-9220. Uh, we love to hear from our supporters. It's a wonderful thing to be able to connect with the communities that we build and to be able to, to feel a part of the community. Um, we have a 95% charity rating, which means 95 cents on every dollar goes directly to the mission. Um, it's one of the highest in the country. And the reason that we do that is because we keep our costs low and we really focus on that sense of, of being a part of everything that we do. We don't have a lot of employees. We don't have a lot of overhead. And we, we focus all of our, our support and all of our passion and energy into to really taking care of our heroes. So if anyone is so inclined, buildinghomesforheroes.org, and you'll find a lot a lot about us on that website. There is a lot of information there, and um, I, I thank you for that. Is there anything else that we should say about the organization? Uh, um, I mean, I just want to say, like, I can't, I can't thank Kim and Andy Pujol and everyone in Building Homes for Heroes enough. I mean, I, I consider myself a pretty robust person. You know, I'm, I'm a go-getter. And, and maybe I need, maybe this is pride, but maybe I need a little less help than others. But I've, I've seen some of the cases and some of these families and some of the just so severely wounded individuals um, that they have helped and literally changed their lives and their entire lives of their family that, um, I mean, a thank you is never enough, but it's really all I had to offer, you know, other than getting on your show like this and trying to spread the word and, and, and get the word out. But yeah, they're just amazing people. Okay. Kimberly in closing. I do like to say, because I don't know that a lot of people fully understand the the reason behind what we do. Our, our veterans, our military personnel, they usually join the, the military at a very young age and they're moving from state to state. They're moving their family from state to state, from country to country. And they don't really ever have that opportunity to put down roots and start start their family and, and start their home. Whereas, you know, a person like me went to college, got out of college, got a job, started buying a house by the age of 23. 
So when our veterans are hurt or injured and they're displaced and they have to move from the, a military life to a civilian life, there's, there's nowhere there to go. There's no home, there's no roots, there's no house. And there, it's, a, it's a hard transition for a lot of our injured veterans to make. And most of our injured veterans tell us that they intended to stay in the military their whole lives. That was their career. My younger brother was injured in Iraq. He lost both of his legs and a portion of his right arm. And I, I followed, you know, his story and what happened to him. And that's how I became involved in this organization. And I realized that that, that was really the typical situation. So it, it's our obligation as people that benefit from living in this country and, and having the ability to go to college and buy a house and put down roots while our military are overseas protecting us. It's our obligation to take care of them. It's, it's something we ought to feel is necessary for us to do. Because without them, we wouldn't have the ability to do all the things that we do. So that's why it's so important for, for this organization to, to exist and for people to really listen and, and pay attention to what's going on in the world and, and understand and appreciate that, you know, these guys and girls, they deserve to have a home. They're protecting your home. They're protecting your ability to live it in, to have it. So they deserve our, our respect, our appreciation, and our support. This is not a, a charity. We're not handing out something to someone who didn't work for it. It's just as earned, deserved, and, and this is our, our respect and our, our contribution that we, it's our debt to them. And I feel that, you know, as an American, myself, who, who has the appreciation that I have for our veterans, it's, it's my duty to get the word out, spread the word, and let people know this is, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. Much appreciated. And Gavin, you're the guy that discovered us on a podcast and connected with us, and I want to thank you so much for that. What would you like to leave our audience with? First and foremost, I just want to thank you for giving us this opportunity to come out here and just share some of the good that we're doing in local communities all across the U.S. And I just want to say, if you can support Building Homes for Heroes, however little, however much you can, I would recommend doing it. Because some of the work that we're doing here is really changing lives and building better homes for a better future. I just want to thank you again for giving us the time. It has been an absolute pleasure. So, Gavin Carrillo, who's the donor relations manager, and we have a recipient, Chris Claude, who's a gunnery sergeant with the U.S. Marine Corps, we should say gunny, and uh, Kimberly Vesey, VP and general counsel for Building Homes for Heroes. Thank you all so much for being part of Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill. He sat cross-legged on the sidewalk A far-off look was in his eyes in his hands he held a piece of cardboard as everyone walked by the sign read usmc veteran i'm not myself please pray for me so i stopped and said you fought to save my freedom what can I do? What do you need? He said, I'd like to shower off these painful memories, get a shave and a pair of new jeans, a meal I don't have to eat alone. Find a 
A while ago, we visited the new Pike County Veterans Affairs Director, Josiah Schrader. Well, we stopped by the other day for an update, and as you will hear, Jess and his crew hit the ground running. So, uh, you've been here how long now? A little over six months. A little over six months. Seems like a lifetime, doesn't it? Uh, with the amount of work that came into the <laughs> office? Yes. Okay, so give me your impressions over that six months of... Uh, First of all, was it what you expected it to be when you walked in the door? And if not, how's that changed? Doing this job for a few years now, I was expecting a, a little more work coming into this office. Okay. And it seems like we were able to handle it. Uh, working with the commissioners and the other county directors, we were able to handle things and get Pike County back on the map. Okay. So... There were some opportunities that weren't taken advantage of before. And so Pike County did have a little lull there with not having a veteran service officer, uh, but we were able to, again, bring myself on board, the commissioners and I approved a second person to come into the office, okay. and we're going to have this individual become accredited also to become a VSO, Beautiful. and we'll be able to have two people in the office to help manage and process claims. And this will also give me the opportunity to do a little more outreach and go into the community. Right. So word has gotten out a little bit. Yes, a lot of uh, references, referrals, uh, newspaper and news and media like yourself are also encouraged and has dramatically boosted this office and the influx of veterans in the last since I've been here. We've seen about 450 individuals come through my door. And not to mention phone calls, emails. I'm currently processing uh, around 50 uh, active compensation claims and quite a few veterans and spouse pension claims. So what would you say is your overall caseload at any one time now since you've been here six months? So I have about 50 cases open okay. on a regular basis. Cool. Some improvements we've made in the office. Yes. Okay, so we definitely did some remodeling. You know, with the commissioners, uh, they they helped, uh, and the maintenance crew did a great job. You know, mm -hmm. uh, renovating the office. It's become a little more modernized. We have a digital display board out front that was donated to the office, and then we also had a county purchase to update our conference and meeting room. Mm -hmm. In the back of my building, I have ability to log on and have a camera and a big display for individuals to do BVA hearings. So what's a BVA hearing? BVA stands for Board of Veteran Appeals. These are when individuals who are filing compensation claims filed an appeal and they need to make a court appearance in front of a judge okay a lot of these court appearances have to be held at the ro but since the pandemic they have opened it up to do virtual conferences and we have the ability to do that so you here. can do that right here in the office we can do that right here in the office oh, that's great that's really good and uh, it's also open up to do presentations and information and other resources as needed so have you had any success stories since you've been here Quite a few success stories, yes. Paraphrase a couple for us. And so, to bring one home, we had a issue with a veteran who was soon to be homeless. 
and we're able to bring some nonprofit organizations together along with our state benefit funds to get them temporary housing and then eventually into permanent housing, which he's currently in. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. So, looks like you're on a roll, and um, I can't imagine what the, the future looks very bright for veterans in Pike County with resources like yourself and, and uh, your new veteran service officers. I wish you the best of luck. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, hopefully there will be changes with the veterans tax exemption program. They're going to be doing the, the threshold increase for the allotted uh, amount that a veteran can earn. Okay. And so that is still being proposed, so I don't have a definite number. What's the proposal? The current number is a little over $95,000. And the veteran can still qualify for a property tax exemption, a school tax, or what? Certain veterans who meet the criteria, they have to have wartime service, be 100% total and permanently disabled. So actually in combat or during? They just need to have a DD-214 that has wartime service. It does not specify combat. Right. There's a financial need where they have to less than that $95,000 threshold. Which should be increased for the upcoming year because of the inflation that the country is seeing. And they also have to be 100% total and permanently disabled through the VA. Yeah, okay. So that makes a difference. Yes. So with the new PACT Act uh, that came out, it has opened up some veterans' uh, window for filing for compensation. Mm -hmm. A lot of Vietnam veterans are experiencing hypertension, which is one of the new conditions that the VA has. made a presumptive condition. They have also opened up regions, as in Guam and Thailand, uh, for an exposure rate. The PACT Act does have a lot of benefits for current Gulf War veterans with certain disabilities. And if you're looking for more information, please contact my office. Yeah. All right. So um, anything else you can think of, Josh? The... DMV and the Department of DMVA, which is the st- our state department, have uh, been communicating, and there is actually a mass letter that was printed out from the DMV encouraging veterans to be aware of their vet- uh, veterans' benefits, to enroll in the VA medical system. So if you were a recipient of that letter, it's because you have the flag veteran identifier on your Pennsylvania driver's license. And if you are interested in rolling, please contact my office. So what's your your message to vets listening who say, well, I don't think I could get anything. I wasn't in combat. Uh, What's your message to them? So I hear that statement all the time. It's like, well, I didn't serve in combat. I didn't go overseas. I didn't do this. I only did two years. I get this question all the time. The word entitlement is thrown around there. I don't like to use that word. But if you are a veteran who serves in the United States military at any point in time and are interested in looking for benefits or understanding your benefits, I encourage you to make an appointment in my office or any veteran service Just office. ask the question and talk about it, Just right? ask the question. No obligation. No obligation. Right. <laughs> and uh, I made that point to one of my friends up Sullivan County Veteran Service Agency, and they said, actually... Using the benefits that you have earned helps other veterans because it helps increase our budget 
and, and give us more money to work with veterans. So, yes, uh, from a financial standpoint, you know, this money is federal money and it comes down from the budgets. Uh, the bigger standpoint that I like to stress to the veterans is you may not be the only one that's suffering from this ailment that you served in this location. Just like Agent Orange, it took 50 years for a lot of those presumptive conditions to come out. Gulf War, 30 years for those presumptives to come out. The more veterans that come forward and present their case will build the numbers and increase the the likelihood of that becoming a a presumptive condition. So veterans, you have an advocate here in, in, in Pike County with Mr. Josiah Schrader, the director, and his staff, and um, other places as well. So, if, if, you know, if you're yep. listening someplace outside of Pike County, Wayne County, or there's, look up your veteran service. Yep, every county has an office just like mine. Right. Well-educated, devoted veteran service officers. Well, on that note, um, I will ask you one more question. Do of you course. have a ceremony here for Pearl Harbor this morning? We had a ceremony this morning for Pearl Harbor. It was put on by the VFW. Well needed. That generation is far behind us. But hey, as well. long as, you know, the generations ahead of us can still remember that day. Yeah. Okay. Josiah Schrader, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming to the office. Okay. Recently, the defense authorization bill was passed. One feature of this legislation removes the COVID vaccine mandate from our military. Good news, right? Well, maybe. The mandate is one thing. The way the troops were treated while waiting for adjudication of their cases upon refusal to take the vaccine is another. In many cases, they were ostracized and virtually held prisoner in less than suitable conditions and at least 3,400 were discharged under less than honorable conditions for disobeying a direct order. This is just one example of how our active military are treated by our civilian elected officials who don't have a clue about real service and to senior military leadership which is more concerned these days with politics than taking care of our women and men in uniform. A prime example is the delay in taking care of medical needs of our women and men in uniform who have sustained service-connected illness or disability. For example, of the 3,403,000 U.S. service members deployed to Southeast Asia, 58,260 died on the battlefield. 153,303 were wounded. For over 50 years since that war officially ended, our vets have had to fight our government for the medical care they have earned while the government bureaucracy fought these claims. Over 350,000 have died due to Agent Orange exposure. Our vets who served in the sandpit are experiencing the same treatment. Add to this the emphasis on the new woke agenda. It seems these days it's more important to use the correct pronoun than to have a clean weapon or learn tactics. As generations passed, how long will the American public remember the historical events that tested and formed this country or the valiant military establishment which has thus far protected our freedoms? How much longer will young men and women look upon military service as a patriotic duty? Or worth their time given the way others have been treated? 
So I guess maybe a strong military may not be necessary in the future, after all, if you have no core values, no rule of law, no accurate history or national identity, or clearly defined and secured borders, do you really have a country? Will there be anything left to defend? We wish to acknowledge the following people and organizations that made this show possible. Hugh Reckner, Chairman, Wayne Memorial Healthcare System. Gavin Carrillo, Director of Donations. Chris Claude, Gunnery Sergeant, retired U.S. Marine Corps. And Kimberly Vesey, VP of Building Homes for Heroes. And Josiah Schrader, Director Pike County Veterans Affairs. And you, thank you for joining us on Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also send us your upcoming events so we may get them on the air in our normal public affairs announcement segments and this program. If you or somebody you know is experiencing a problem or need to speak to someone, 24 by 7 Confidential Crisis Support is available. Now all you have to do is dial 988 and press 1 to speak with someone. You can send a text message to 838255 or start a confidential online chat session at veteranscrisisline.net. Until our next formation, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company. Dismissed.